Amen. 1 John 4 verse 9 says, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. You may not know what the word propitiation means. It means you got something that you didn't deserve because the grace of God washed away your sin, forgave you, and set you on the path of righteousness. And we're so grateful for that love. Thank you so much for your gift of music today. Uh, we are your debtors for the way that you have led us to remember the wonderful grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to take your Bible this morning and turn with me to the Old Testament and the book of Psalms, be locating the 73rd chapter. If you're on a smart device, I'll be reading in just a minute from the King James translation, Psalm 73. And I want to put myself in a very vulnerable position before you as brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, I really want to preach to you this morning not so much as a guest speaker coming in to speak at a Bible conference, but with apology and hopeful understanding from the leadership of this church, including your esteemed former pastor and your interim pastor, I'd like to just install myself as the pastor of this church for the next 45 minutes. And I'm going to go ahead and resign in advance, so if there's sick people, you have to go visit them at the hospital this afternoon. But I really just want to talk to you as a pastor to a people, as a fellow pilgrim in the journey of life. I want to borrow the inspired words of the psalmist Asaph. In Psalm 73, he speaks to us about what I've called a good God in bad times. A good God in bad times. I heard the story of a truck driver who was driving through the night. He was hoping to make it home in time for breakfast with his wife and his kids. And along about 3 o'clock in the morning, his eyes were getting heavy, and he thought, well, if I could just get just an hour of sleep, I think I could press on and make it home by breakfast time. So he pulled into a truck stop, and he, he, he turned his truck off and began to drift off. And about 15 minutes later, there was a knock on the window of his cab. He rolled the window down, and somebody standing there said, Hey, mister, do you know what time it is? He said, Man, it's 3.15 in the morning. I'm trying to get some sleep. Leave me alone. The guy said, Sorry. Rolled the window back up. About 15 minutes later, there was another knock on the window of a cab. Rolled the window down. There's a guy standing there. Excuse me, sir, do you know what time it is? The truck driver said, man, for crying out loud, it's 3.30 in the morning. I'm trying to get some sleep, get home in time for breakfast. He said, sorry, man, I was just curious what time it was. About 15 minutes later, there's another knock on the door. He rolled the window down. Excuse me, sir, do you know what time it is? He said, for Pete's sake, it's 3.45 in the morning. I'm trying to get some sleep. Leave me alone. man said, sorry, I just want to know what time it was. Truck driver realized if I don't do something, they're going to keep waking me up. So he grabbed a piece of paper and a pen, and he wrote a note that simply said, I'm trying to get some sleep, and I don't know what time it is. He stuck it on the window. Fifteen minutes later, somebody knocked on the window. Hey, mister, I saw you don't know what time it is. Just wanted you to know it's four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> well, that may be funny, but you've, if you've lived long enough, and most of you have, you know sometimes trouble keeps knocking no matter what you try to do to get it to stop knocking. It keeps on knocking anyway. And what are we as the people of God to do when bad times call for a good God? Psalm 73 is our text, and I'd like to ask you if you don't mind standing for the reading of God's inspired, infallible, and inerrant Word. I'm going to read the entire chapter. I realize it will be long. I may even make some brief commentary in the reading of the text. So if you are not physically able to remain standing, you certainly feel free to just take your seat if you need to do so. Psalm 73, my Bible lays, labels it the prosperity of the wicked. A Psalm of Asaph. 
Truly God is good to Israel. Anybody want to say God's a good God to His people? Even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. He says, God, I know, I know in my heart, I know in my spirit, I know that you're good, but there are sometimes it doesn't feel like it. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He said, I got my eyes off God and started looking at the lives of other people. Verse 4, for there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. Now, in that day, to say that somebody was fat, that was a compliment. It meant that they were prosperous. They had a nice car, a big house, fancy clothes. They had a, they had a, a great job. Life was great for them. Verse 7, their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people run hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, listen to how the people mock God. They say, how doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches." Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. He says, God, a servant you hadn't done me any good. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. And if I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. Look, look right here, church. Here's what he's saying. God, the people all around me who don't know you, they don't claim to know you, they don't walk with you and don't claim to walk with you. They say there's no knowledge with you, that you're not in control of the things of the earth. They mock you, they scoff, and they scorn. And God, if I expressed the desire of my heart, if I said what was in my heart and on my mind, it would sound on a day like this like I agree with them. Verse 16, when I, sought, when I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. God, I'm ashamed of the way I've been thinking. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. Surely thou dost set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved. And I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I. God, when I was acting like you were not on your throne, how foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast hold me with thy right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel. And afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. Father, would you bless the reading of your word? 
And I pray that you would literally shove your words through my mouth, your thoughts into my mind, that your people gathered here today may understand that you're a good God in good times, you're a good God in average and mediocre times, and even when times are bad, you have always been, you are now, and you will forever be a good God. Write that truth on our heart for our good and Jesus' glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Sometimes we can be minding our own business and life brings difficulty that seems to come out of nowhere. I want to just share my heart with you today to say that about two and a half, three weeks ago, that's exactly where I found myself. I will not go into the details because this text is not about me, this sermon is not about me, and I am painfully aware that if I told you what was going on in my life, many in this building have been through things that are objectively far, far, far worse. But when it's the worst thing you've ever gone through, it's the worst thing. When it's the hardest thing you've ever faced, it's the hardest thing you've ever faced. When, when it's the most difficult hour that you've experienced, that's just the most difficult thing that you have ever experienced. And it has seemed to be coming in from every side, emotionally, ministerially, professionally, if you please, and even physically in my body. It has impacted my family. It has impacted a number of relationships, and I can relate to what this psalmist is saying. God, there are moments in my life when I'm crushed under the, under the weight of adversity that I, I, I know in my head and I know from your word that you're a good God, but God, sometimes in that crucible of difficulty, it doesn't feel like it in that moment. Now, Asaph will get us to the point to remind us that we do not base our assessment of God on our fickle emotions or our fleeting feelings, but he's just being honest with us to say that there are times I don't really feel like God's a good God. Now, I want to say a few things by way of introduction about the human author of this text. Our brother has so wonderfully reminded us that all Scripture is the inspired and authoritative and sufficient Word of God, but he writes it through human instrumentation. And in the case of the 73rd Psalm, it's a man named Asaph. Now, Asaph was a worshiping man. He is used by God to write some great hymns of worship. The book of Psalms was, among other things, an ancient Jewish hymnal. He was a prolific songwriter. He wrote songs of worship. He was to the Jewish hymnal what Fanny Crosby would be to the Baptist hymnal, Charles Wesley to the Methodist hymnal. Or maybe you understand if I said he was what Bill Gaither would be to a busload of senior adults heading to Pigeon Forge. <laughs> but yet his heart and passion for the worship of the one true living God did not immunize him from trouble. And you can be at a Friday morning Bible conference and it won't exempt you either. He was a worshiping man. Asaph was also a working man. He is used by the Holy Spirit to pen at least 12 chapters of the Word of God, maybe even more because some of the Psalms are anonymous. That puts him in a category with only about two other people in the course of human history. He was a man who served the living God. In our day, we'd say he's a deacon, he's an usher, he's a Sunday school teacher, maybe a staff member or a pastor. He's a godly husband, he's a Christian father, he's a good neighbor, he's a soul winner, he's a tither, he's a prayer warrior. But I want to say again, neither being a worshiping man nor a working man gave him a Teflon suit that made trouble bounce off of him. He was a working man and a worshiping man, but Psalm 73 finds him as a worried man. There are some things on his mind, and if I put it more bluntly, there are some things in his crawl. He's bothered by two things. 
He is bothered by the fact that he sees God pouring out difficulty on godly people. And he's bothered further because he notices God pouring out blessings on wicked people. And although he understands the truth of what we would call our Bible... He's just made out of flesh and blood, red blood coursing through his veins, and perhaps at an altar of brokenness and prayer, he says, God, I don't understand why bad things happen to good people and why good things seem to happen to bad people. God, I just don't understand what's going on in my life. And born of that, out of that pain and difficulty, Asaph understands three things about who God is and what God does in the midst of bad times. First of all, I want you to notice that he understands first that God is sovereign over trouble. He quotes the wicked in this psalm and says, they say there's no knowledge with God. He says, in essence, God, the wicked say that you are not on your throne. You don't even exist. And God, I know that's not true. Asaph is painfully and keenly aware that God is sovereign over the affairs of the world. But that is actually one of the things initially that bugs the fire out of him. God, if you're on your throne, why aren't you doing something? God, if you're in control, why aren't you moving? He's not the first and he wasn't the last to ever ask that question. David wrestles with this question in in the Psalms. The sons of Korah wrestle with this question in the Psalms. The prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 12.1 asked it like this, Righteous are you, O Lord, that I would plead my case with you. I would like to discuss matters of justice with you. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? And why are those who deal in treachery at ease? He is wrestling with the difficulty in his life in part because he knows that God could change it if God wanted to. May I remind you what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 11, beginning in verse 32. He said, Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned the enemies to flight, women even receiving their dead raised to life again. He says, God, I know you protected David from Saul and from Goliath and Absalom. I know you protected Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. I know you protected Daniel from the lion's den, but I've just got a question that's burning down in my soul. If you did it for them, why won't you do it for me? As he wrestles with the sovereignty of God over our trouble, there are two specific things that he is really dealing with. First, he's troubled by blessings on the godless. He's dealing with the fact that God rains down his goodness and mercy on both the just and the unjust. It was raining earlier today, and if you are standing out in this parking lot without an umbrella or a rain jacket, do you know what the wicked man and the righteous man would have in common? They're both going to get wet because the rain's falling on the just and the unjust. He's looking at the difficulty in his own life, and he's just wrestling with the fact that people who don't seem to care about the things of God have life easier. 
he's not just bothered by his own difficulty, he's bothered by the burdens that he's facing in light of their blessings. I would illustrate it personally like this. My wife and I, we got married a little bit older than most people, and we had saved ourselves for our marriage, and we knew that after we were married, we somewhat immediately wanted to try to start having a family. We wanted a large family and a number of children. But it was a month of disappointment after another. Seven and a half years into our marriage, God blessed us to be able to adopt a child. We now have four children, two adopted and two biological children. When it became known that we were really dealing with infertility, people in our church began to almost apologize to us when they found out they were pregnant. They'd come by the house and they'd want to give us a warning. You know, we're about to announce that we're going to have a child. Don't want to hurt your feelings. And I want you to understand this. This is very important. I was never bothered, nor was my wife, not one time when people who walk with God and want to raise children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord found out that they were having a child. But I got to bear my soul and tell you, when I'd go to Walmart and see some Walmart parenting, it would just flat tick me off. Why them and not me? Preacher, why is his church down the street growing and mine is dwindling? I'm trying to preach the Word and he's preaching cotton candy. What's up with that, God? I've tried to raise my kids right and my boys in the pig pen of rebellion. They hadn't done anything right and their kids seem to be doing great. What's up with that, God? God, I try to give tithes and offerings, and yet there's always too much month at the end of the money. And my boss, he doesn't give a rip about you, and he's got a house at the lake. He's got a cabin in the mountains. He's got a pond. He's got everything that money could buy. I don't understand your blessings on the godless. But he also wrestles with God's sovereignty because of burdens on the godly. Blessings on the godless, burdens on the godly. Did you notice what he confesses down in verse 13? Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. He says, Lord, I've done everything right. I've tried to serve you. I've tried to walk with you. I've tried to live close and clean. And it seems as if it's all for nothing. Why are there blessings on the wicked and burdens on the righteous. God, why aren't you treating people the same way? Why did you deliver Daniel from the lion's den, but John the apostle had to die on the rocky isle of Patmos? Why did you deliver the three Hebrews from the fiery furnace, but yet in days past, thousands upon thousands were burned at the stake of inquisition? Why did you deliver this one and this one and this one and this one? And yet even today, more Christians are losing their lives for the cause of Christ around the world than at any time in human history. God, it doesn't seem fair. And here's the answer that this preacher, and I think this psalmist has wrestled his way to. Listen very carefully. When you think that God is not fair because there are blessings falling on somebody else and difficulty falling on you, you need to get this straight in your mind. God is immutable. 
That's a big theological word that merely means God not only does not change, God cannot change. It is out of His own divine limitations to be able to change because God is perfect. That means He can't change for the worse because that would have meant He was never perfect to start with. He can't change for the better because that would mean He now has room for improvement. God in His holy perfection is immutable. God cannot change. That means His principle, His character, His attributes are 100% absolutely the same for every man, woman, boy, and girl on the face of the earth. But even within the body of Christ, while God's character and His purposes are the same, His plans for each individual person are as unique and specific as the sands of the sea. That means God may not have that particular plan for you. He may not want you to have children. He may not want you to get married. Hey, you're praying, you think that sweet thing that works with you, you think she's Mrs. Right? God may know she's as crazy as a rage sprayed roach. She'll be the ruin of you. God may know He can't trust you with money. God may know He can't trust you with blessing. You'll be off in the pig pen blowing it all as well. Here Asaph is dealing with the fact that God is sovereign. Now, if you have a fatalistic view of God that believes that God is not sovereignly superintending the affairs of your life, you will never understand difficulty. Asaph began to realize, I'm right where I am. God could change it if He wanted to. He loves me. And therefore, by faith and trust, I'm going to choose to believe that I'm right where God would have me to be. William Cooper was a hymn writer of centuries ago. He is perhaps best known, especially to the secular world, for his wonderful poem, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. The poem includes this line, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. You know what that means? That means you ain't smart enough to figure out God. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. For behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. You say, preacher, that's still old English. I don't know that I understand that. Okay, how about this one? Trials dark on every hand, and we cannot understand all the ways God would lead us to that blessed promised land, but He'll guide us with His eye, and we'll follow till we die, and we'll understand it better. Maybe not today, maybe not this afternoon, maybe not even tomorrow, but one day when I see Him, and I know Him like I am now known, I'll understand it better. When church, by and by, He says, God, I'm going to trust you. When they say you're not in control, they're wrong. You are sovereign over trouble. There's a second main truth the psalmist would have us to see today. Not only that the Lord God is sovereign over trouble, but He's our sanctifier through trouble. A sanctifier through trouble. Asaph is bothered in part because he believes that the difficulty he is facing is punishment from God. Now look right here and listen very carefully. God never punishes his children. God disciplines His children. 
Now, if you think that those are synonyms, you're going to miss the point. Those are not synonyms. God never punishes His children. God disciplines His children. You see, punishment is only concerned with meeting out a pound of flesh because of what you did. Punishment is not concerned about the heart. Punishment is not concerned about the soul. Punishment is not concerned about the future. The criminal courts will often punish criminals. Here's what you did. We found you guilty. We're sending you to jail for 15 years. We don't care if you're sorry. We don't care if you're broken. We don't care if you're repentant. Here's what you did, and we're going to punish you. God does not do that with His people. God doesn't punish us without a concern for what's going on on the inside. God disciplines His children because He wants to reach down into the heart. And so difficulty that comes from, by, and through, and past the hand of God is not something God is doing to us. It's something God is allowing for us because it's something God wants to do in us that He might do something greater through us for the glory of the risen Christ. Asaph begins to understand, God, you're sovereign over trouble. And God, you are a sanctifier through trouble. Now, why does God so frequently use difficulty to get our attention and to sanctify us? That is to make us more and more like Jesus. Here's what I've discovered in my life. God uses trouble because it gets my attention the best. I've got four children. They're as different as night and day. And if you've got multiple children, you know one of the challenges is finding out what type of discipline are they responding to the, 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 the most at this point in their life. Early in life, it may be a swat on the leg, a pinch on the fanny. Then it, may be a, then it may be a paddle. How many of you know what it means when your daddy takes his belt off and says, we're going to do some business. You're about to get it, and you know where it's going to land. Can I get a witness? Yes, I've got older teenagers now, and sometimes it's a, 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 the deprivation of privileges. Put them on restriction. Maybe take that cell phone, and then they act like they're you know, being raised in a third world country. I'm convinced as God looks at Mike Stone, and you're probably not too different, God knows I can get their attention with blessing, but I know what will get their attention more. Trouble. Now, as he sees God as a sanctifier through trouble, there are three things that I notice. In times of trouble, first of all, we can remember God's goodness. In times of trouble, we can remember God's goodness. Look at verse 16. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. When I tried to figure this out, I couldn't wrap my mind around it. Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Now the scholars debate as to what Asaph may be referencing here by the sanctuary of God. Is he talking about an actual physical place of worship in our vernacular? Is he talking about, I was troubled until I got to the Sunday school room. I was troubled until I got to the choir loft. I was troubled until I got up to the church house. There may be a sense in which that is true, but it seems to be more true to this preacher that what he is saying is, I was troubled with all of those things because I kept looking at the way of the wicked. I kept looking at the prosperity of the world. And God, that bugged me to no end until I got back in your presence and face to face with you. And as the hymn writer said, I've turned my eyes upon Jesus. I've looked full in His wonderful face and the things of earth have now grown strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. God, what I needed was to get into your presence. As Psalm 1611 says, in your presence there is fullness of joy and at thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Sometimes we need to talk to God about our problems. Sometimes we need to talk to our problems 
problems about our God. Here's what I've started saying to my problems in light of coming into the sanctuary of God. You're not big enough to take on my God. You're not stronger than my God. You're not any greater than my God. If God is for me, who or what can ever be against me? He says, I was troubled by the things of the world until I had a fresh encounter with the living God. He says, I can remember your goodness. Wednesday was two weeks ago. I was traveling back home from the Nashville airport and trying to get where I live, you can't get there without going through Atlanta. And I got off the plane at the Atlanta airport and I hesitate to tell you this, but I want, I want to just share my heart with you this afternoon. I'm not an overly emotional person. I find myself to be very stable. But when I got off the plane in Atlanta, because of stuff going on in my life, I called my wife. I didn't want to call her and tell her this because she was about five hours drive away and she wasn't going to be able to do anything I thought. She wasn't going to be able to do anything about what I was about to share with her. But I called her and I said, Honey, I don't know what to do. I, I, I can't breathe. The emotion and the grief and the heart hardship pressing down on me. I was literally having trouble breathing. And I, I said, I, I hate to call you because I know you can't do anything, but I didn't know who else to call. She said, let me pray for you. And she began to quote Scripture in her prayer that she probably didn't even know she had memorized. She began to pray that the God of all comfort would guard and keep my heart and mind in Christ Jesus. She started praying that I would cast all my cares upon Him, knowing that He cares for me. She began to pray that I would not be anxious over anything, but in everything with prayer and petition and thanksgiving, I would present my request to God so that the peace of God, which passes all understanding, would guard my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. And I'm here today to tell you, I told you how bad a situation I was in because I wanted you to know, I do not exaggerate when I tell you the clouds of trouble lifted and the sunlight of the Lord Jesus Christ shined on the darkness of my soul. I hung up my phone. I stopped my trembling. I stopped my crying and I said, I will remember the goodness of my God. Asaph said, I didn't understand what was going on until I got in your presence. Beloved, in times of trial, we can remember His goodness. Secondly, in times of trials, we can receive His grace. Verse 18 begins to describe his, his renewed awareness that the wicked are one day going to perish. Verse 21 says, My heart was grieved. I was pricked in my reins. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before thee. He's just acknowledging God when I was thinking that way. I wasn't thinking rightly. But by your grace, you have revealed yourself fresh and new to me again commenting on a similar principle over in the book of 1 Peter, which, by the way, is a book that deals with suffering for the sake of Christ. Dr. Warren Wearsby comments on this principle and says, When our Heavenly Father allows His children to be in the furnace of adversity, He keeps His hand on the thermostat and His eye on the clock. Wearsby said His loving heart knows exactly how much and exactly how long. God began to pour out His grace in Asaph's life. 
Isn't that what the Apostle Paul experienced in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? You remember he testifies of how he had he knew a man, seems like he's talking about himself, that was that was taken into the very throne room of God, didn't know if it was literal or if it was just by revelation or vision. And then he says, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a what? There was given me a, a thorn in the flesh. He calls it a messenger of Satan, and twice he says it was sent to keep me from exalting myself. Now the scholars debate over what that thorn in the flesh was. Was it a person? Was it a physical problem? Was it a situation he was going through? I don't know and the Bible doesn't tell us so your opinion is just as good as mine and mine just as good as yours. But I will say this, I don't know what a thorn in the flesh was for Paul but it doesn't sound like it was any fun. Three times he asked the Lord to remove it. And if you've got a red letter Bible, you know that prayer was eventually answered by the living Christ himself. You remember the answer, Paul? I'm not going to remove that thorn in the flesh. I'm going to give you something better. If I were Paul right about here, I want to say, Hold on, Lord. What could be better than you lifting the burden off my back? What could be better than you providing for that physical need? What could be better for you getting this old Jezebel out of my church? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. What could be better than you restoring this relationship, healing this sickness? What could possibly be better for me than you meeting my request and removing this thorn in the flesh? God said, I've got something better for you than solving that problem. I'm going to give you my grace, and you're going to find that my grace is sufficient in your hour of need. You're going to find through that that my strength is perfected, not in your ability, not in your intellect, not in your ability to bow your back and square your shoulders and jut your jaw and face it head on, you're going to find out that my strength is perfected in your time of weakness. I'll tell you what's better than me solving that problem. I'm going to hitch myself up to you and you up to me, and I'm going to be with you not only in that problem, but every other problem and situation you face in your life. In times of trial, we can remember His goodness and receive His grace. In times of trial, thirdly, we can recognize His guidance. I'm up to verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee, and thou hast holden me by my right hand. I doubt there's anybody in this part of uh, Tennessee that this week said, God, I want to thank you that you're holding me by my right hand. But he says, God, I'm going to trust you because I know you got this. You understand that? I know that you are with me. As David said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Psalm 46 verse 1 said, The Lord is a refuge and a strength, a very present help in times of trouble. And beloved, if you have ever wondered how God would be able to take something that looked really, really, really bad and use it for His own glory and divine purposes then go with me outside the city of Jerusalem and I want you to just travel with me in your mind for just a moment down a blood-stained pathway to a skull-shaped mountain where there hanging on two rough timbers was the Son of the living God Himself. And it looked like hell had won. It looked like death had been victorious. But as in that moment, God was working all things together for our good and for His divine purposes. 
Asaph says, God, I'm going to trust you because you're sovereign over trouble. I'm going to trust you because you're sanctifying me through this trouble. I shared with the pastor friend yesterday, I'm to preach revival for him in a couple of weeks, and we were calling, doing that last-minute checkup about hotel and all that stuff. He said, how are you doing? I said, I've got more stuff going on in my life right now than any time I can remember, but I can honestly tell you, I've never felt closer to Jesus. Someone in this building today needs to be reminded that anything that puts you flat on your back and causes you to call out, I need thee, oh, I need thee, every hour I need thee, no matter how hard it is, how difficult it is, how painful it is, anything that puts you there in the arms of your Lord is ultimately a very good thing. He says, God, you're sovereign over trouble. You're a sanctifier through trouble. And then thirdly and lastly, God, you're our strength in trouble. You're our strength in trouble. Up to this point in the text, he says, essentially, God, I know you're in control. I know you're doing a work in me in this situation that I cannot cannot now fully see, but, but honestly, Lord, that in and of itself doesn't make it one bit easier to face. I need, I need some help down here. And God, in His mercy, gives Asaph two things. I want to share them with you, and we're going to lunch. First of all, God gives him a heavenly perspective. Starting in verse 24. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. He's talking about heaven. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is nothing on earth I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart fail. My emotions and my body are going to fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion, not just for this day and not just for tomorrow. God, you're my portion forever. Let's look right here, church. Here's what he's saying. God, one thing that's going to give me faith, trust, hope, and confidence in this day I'm facing right now is you're reminding me by the Spirit, this is not the end. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy is going to come in the morning. And joy may not necessarily come ultimately tomorrow morning, but one day I'm going to be bursting forth from the South Georgia sod. My cold, dead body will hear the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. And as one of the dead in Christ, my body is going to rise, and I'm going to meet the Lord in the air, and forever, and forever, and forever, and forever, I'm going to be with the Lord. He says in simple South Georgia language, God, you've encouraged me by reminding me as bad as this life can be, this life is not all there is. He gets a heavenly perspective. Lastly, he gives, God gives him a hiding place. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I've put my trust in the Lord God. One songwriter said, sometimes he calms the storm and sometimes he calms his child. God, I don't really need the winds to stop blowing if I've got a place to hide. God, it's all right for the waves to keep crashing if I've got a place to hide. God, it really doesn't matter what's going on around me as long as I know that you are within me and you are around me. You're my refuge and my strength. The name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run to it and are saved. 
You're my refuge and strength. You're my fortress. You are my hiding place. And God, today I will run to you. There was a local art gallery that put on an art contest for local painters. The gallery was entitled Peace, P-E-A-C-E, Peace. And the competition was simple. Draw your best rendering of peace. We'll have the contest and the winner gets a financial prize and will stay on display in the art gallery forever. So the famous art judges came in and they had narrowed it all the way down to the last two and here they were in the main rotunda of that art gallery on two easels, both of them labeled peace. One picture was a picture of a beautiful meadow. Green grass, blue clear skies, beautiful tree. The artist had painted a little bird in the one of the boughs of that tree. You could almost feel the gentle breeze blowing and hear that bird happily chirping as a family sat on a calico blanket up underneath the shade of that tree having a beautiful, peaceful picnic. Peace. But the other picture, the one that won, was painted primarily with blacks and grays. It was a seascape, but not the kind of picture that you would want on your July beach vacation. The winds were strong and the waves were rough. and The foam was crashing against the ocean and the rocks of that ocean. You'd look at that picture and think a hurricane was on the horizon. But drawn up high in the cliffs was a tiny little picture of a bird nest in the cleft of the rock. And the artist had pictured almost undiscernible to the eye. You had to study it. It was a mama bird with her wings outstretched. And you could see some little chicks up under her wings. The storm was still raging. The winds were still blowing. The waves were still crashing. But there was that mama bird taking care of her own. And the artist simply titled it, That's Asaph's song. In the little country church where I grew up, we used to try to declare this truth like, like this. We'd say, I feel the touch of hands so kind and tender. They're leading me in paths that I must trot. But I'll have no fear, for Jesus walks beside me, and I'm sheltered in the arms of God. So let the storms rage high, the dark clouds rise, they won't worry me, for I'm sheltered safe. Within the arms of God. Are you in this with me? He walks with me. And not of earth shall harm me. For I'm sheltered in the arms of God. I don't know what you're going through, but I'll tell you this. God's in control of it. 
He'll do a work in you, with you, through you, and for you if you'll submit to His Lordship over it. And in the end, whether He changes your situation or not, He's still a good God, even in bad times.